welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Uh, this is part two of my excellent discussion with Bill Nussie, CEO of Freeing Energy and Solar Inventions, and author of the upcoming book, Freeing Energy. You and I talked about uh, in past conversations, the findings that you know, policy and you know, governmental creation of markets were dominantly what led to the drop in solar panel prices. And that's because, you know, creating a mass market means you create mass distribution, you create middle people, you create efficiencies. Everybody's looking to take some money out of the process so they can put a little bit of that money they took out in their pocket. You know, you get all the advantages of the global distribution network rights law. There's still room in the chemistries and the making of solar panels. And you've got some exciting news on that just this week, I think. So, <laughs> so, you know, because our, our buddy Peter Kelly reached out to me and said, hey, Mike, you know, you should look at Bill Nussie and his partner's stuff. And I'm thinking, I, I guess, Peter, hey, guess what? I'm talking to Bill on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was, so talk to me. T- tell, tell our audience about your, your great news this week and why you've got great news. So a bit of a backstory to give you some context for this. And thank you for asking. It is very exciting. When I first thing when I left IBM to write this book, the number one thing that was going to be a fly in the ointment of my big idea about the shift to clean energy was that solar was going to stop getting cheaper. It had been getting cheaper. And most people I asked said that, oh gosh, it's as cheap as it's ever going to get. There's no way it can get cheaper. And I could do the analysis on the labor and installation side, but I really wanted to understand the science side. And so I asked around the United States to find somebody who would mentor me in the manufacturing and the physics of making solar cells. Found a brilliant guy named Dr. Ben Damiani, uh, who happened to be out of Georgia Tech and happened to be one of the principal designers of most of the products Cineva made, if you remember that company in the old days, the US manufacturer of solar. And he answered my questions over several months, uh, really gave me optimism that the price of solar would continue going down, which it has, last month or so aside. And so one day over dinner, you know, we had become really friendly. And I said, so Ben, what would you, you know, if you, if you could take any crazy ideas, what would you do? And he, he started rattling off all these, to me, brand new ideas, turns out were brand new ideas on how you could improve uh, the existing solar, silicon solar industry in terms of uh, products, manufacturing, things like that. And he had half a dozen ideas. And there was one in the center that didn't produce these sort of gigantic changes in the industry, but was also ridiculously easy to adopt. And uh, we call that technology the uh, configurable current cell, which is essentially taking an existing traditional solar cell in the manufacturing process. And the final step, it's called metallization, where you're putting the silver on top. And through some tricks that most people didn't believe could work, you can make the, you can do the metallization in a slightly different way and mimic 
one of the biggest trends in solar, which is called half cells. This is funny to people who aren't, who aren't electrical engineers, but if you take a solar cell, a perfectly fine solar cell, you break it in half and you wire it back up again, for reasons of electrical engineering, it actually produces more power. It's crazy, but it's true. It's the way efficiency and heat loss and things like that interact. In any event, his C3 invention allows you to virtually split the cell and not just in two pieces, but in three or four or five or six pieces and get many, not all, but many of the same benefits. It has a secondary benefit of actually reducing the amount of silver that's needed. And that was something we didn't think a lot about until the price of silver started getting uh, going through the roof in the last year. And this has become the number one reason our uh, customers are interested in this. So the problem with this was it was a pretty radical idea. And there haven't been a lot of radical new ideas in solar in the last couple of decades. And we, uh, in order for us to, to license this, we don't want to make solar cells. It'd be like if, uh, if we had a better chemical to make tire, car tires more resilient and someone said, well, you should make a car. It's a, we're a small part. Our invention is a small part of a very complex manufacturing chain. So our business is to make this available to people who make solar cells and solar panels. And, but of course they're not interested unless we have a patent and we spent two, two and a half grueling years working with the U S patent office and some brilliant attorneys and finally made them believe that they were really, this hadn't been invented before. They threw a whole ton of stuff at us and we just patiently would say, no, this is, this is very different. It looks similar, but here's why it's different. There are different outcomes, different challenges, different upsides. And eventually just very recently, we got the patent for this. So this is a really foundational patent in the industry. And it's very important for us. And we are, uh, I think we were all very excited about the transition to clean energy. And so our model here is to probably, we hope that the people that license this from us make a fortune. We're not trying to capture you know, the, anywhere near the majority of the money they're going to make from it. We just want wide licensing and we want to use all that money to create more inventions that will then hopefully help the whole solar industry move even more quickly. It's, a, it's a definitely not a, let's build a bunch of patents and tax everybody. It's a, just get this in the market so we can make enough money to keep doing it. And I think the world would be a better place by our math. If everyone used this, which is obviously crazy to think about, but if everyone used it, it would add about half a billion dollars worth of additional solar into the industry for no extra cost. For reduced cost with reduction of silver, right? Yes. Yes. So more energy and less silver together. It's a nice one-two combination. Now, I think there's a percentage associated with the um, effectiveness or efficiency of the solar panel made with this technology. So, you know, why don't you give people a kilowatt hours idea of what that means? So I always hesitate to tell people outside the industry because they say, oh, that's not interesting. But if you have a 300 watt panel, we might make it a 303 watt panel. And so that doesn't sound very exciting because you might have seen something in the mainstream media or on your science uh, blog about how they're going to double the efficiency of solar panels. The likelihood is that thing that doubles the efficiency will never get built because it's never going to leave the lab and no one's going to invest a hundred billion dollars worth of factories to make it. So the solar industry, as I've learned, is one that's uh, just like microprocessors is really built on and, and, and flat screen televisions and all those. It's just built on countless numbers of small innovations that together create a very steady, if almost predictable decline in costs and increase in efficiency. So we are one of many of those unknown, unsung in incremental improvements. But what makes us most unique is uh, somebody might 
want their 300 watt panel to be a 305 watt panel. So they threw out their entire factory and put in half cell. They, they cut the cells in half and they wired them specially. So they have to do a massive factory upgrade to get that extra five, six watts at half cells, get them. C3 lets them get two, three, four watts with no change in any equipment or any materials and virtually no risk. So while it's not the sexy giant leap, it is by our measure, the lowest cost, easiest and risk lowest risk way to improve the output of a solar cell, solar cell and solar panel that's ever been created. So what you're saying is that the people who are excited by the funding of perovskite might not be really actually going to get anywhere with that? <laughs> Do not get my uh, founder, co-founder of Ben Damiani on perovskites. It's uh, the problem with perovskites is that they're less efficient. And that maybe sound, it sounds academic, but it turns out that the efficiency of a solar cell of any kind has in tremendous downstream secondary costs. And you can think about it, about the amount of electricity you can generate per square meter, it's a common measurement. And every square meter of solar panels, whether it's perovskites or silicon solar or a thin film of another kind, requires more metal for racks, more humans to wire it more aluminum to, uh, to, to, to wrap around it. And so when you try to introduce a lower efficiency product into the today's market, even though it may be cheaper, it ends up costing the installers and ultimately the owners of that solar project more money because the extra space required means the steel and aluminum and wiring and labor go up proportionally to the reduction in efficiency. So that's where Perovskites kind of hit a wall about uh, two years ago, and people realized that it's unlikely that they could make them last as long, be as resilient in weather, and come anywhere close to the efficiencies. So they pivoted as an industry, and and this is I'm optimistic about this pivot. They're now saying that they're going to like a peanut butter sandwich. They're going to use perovskites on top of silicon solar cells. It's called tandem cells. Uh, so you you might get a little reduction in the silicon uh, cell energy, and you may not get the most op optimized perovskite energy, but together you can get, theoretically, you can get solar cells that have more efficiency and are still cost-effective than anything else out there today that you could do with solar uh, silicon alone. And several very large, serious solar companies have committed to doing tandem perovskite cells. So I'm optimistic that perovskite will have a role, but silicon will remain the dominant backplane of solar for the foreseeable future. Well, I, I like to think of perovskites as the fusion of the solar world. <laughs> uh, so in other words, I'll believe it when I see it and it's producing results. And until then, glad that people are still doing interesting research. But congratulations on the patent. I, you know, I'm affiliated, I'm a board observer and a strategic advisor with a CO2-based battery yes. startup, which is very cool. Uh, Agora Energy Technologies, everybody should go look at them and because they're, you know, Turn you know, store energy using CO two like what? Um, very cool. Uh, but yeah, fifty two patents in wow. progress globally. Um, they've got United States, they've got China, they've got you know other places. The twenty eight countries of the EU go as a block, mm-hmm. and they've there that process is moving through. And they started in twenty seventeen. You know, fundamental patents like yours and like Agora's take a long time and a lot of money to work through and protect stuff globally. So. Yeah, it's a patents really are an interesting problem. dimension. It's just difficult to build a business where you have a, a copyable idea because no one wants to fund it if it's going to get copied. So patents are necessary. But I think patents 
you know, our double-edged sword because some industries and particularly some companies end up using them in an offensive way and they undermine the potential of the industry. And sometimes it takes a while, but you, what, what I hope happens in silicon solar and, and, and batteries, because we'll see it even more large contentious intellectual property battles around batteries is that they do like the software industry has done for, for example, MP3 music. A whole bunch of people had a disparate set of patents and they, after a lot of warring and a lot of negotiating among themselves, they all got together and created one master license that represented everyone's interests, probably like trying to uh, negotiate a carbon reduction across 200 countries. But anyway, they, in this case, they were successful and you can get a single license or a single set of licenses very simply without negotiating and going to court with a hundred companies. So I think we're going to need to get there. Hopefully the energy industry will learn some lessons from the software industry and see if we can jump in front with some consolidated licensing. But that's, I worry that too many small players uh, or trolls are the worst uh, get in the way of full-scale innovation. That's uh, hopefully we can skip past that without too much suffering. Yeah. It's uh there's a, an interesting side story that we won't get into there, but um, interesting enough, it's an interesting question to me around intellectual capital, because you and I come from a, an industry that's strongly intellectually capital focused. You know, there's all sorts of secret sauce in the code and stuff like that, and protecting it and all those things. And patents are a big part of technology stacks. But I, I will challenge your idea that intellectual capital and, and patents are required for business. I'll just clarify that, you know, major grocery chains, for example, um, have highly repeatable business models without patents, particularly, unless they're Amazon. And so there are a whole bunch of businesses and a whole bunch of businesses open in the distributed energy space, the small energy space, that are just about forming a business, finding customers, finding the right products that meet the customer's needs, getting them in front of the customers, selling to the customers, helping the customers, supporting the customers, and taking some of the customers' money. There's a lot of work associated with this transformation. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And the vast majority of the work is as you describe. And the work that needs to be done is, as you describe, patents are only applicable to a small portion of the industry. Even among the people doing innovation, I don't think patents are the right general answer. It's just that subset of that group that's sort of scientifically forward thinking like Agora and hopefully solar interventions. And, and let's put this in context. Right now, there are probably, you know, two, I, I consider two fundamental technologies for a lot of the Southern United States, especially, and, you know, not the Pacific Northwest as much, because up here in British Columbia and, you know, Seattle, south of me, our solar kind of sucks. <laughs> but that said, for the rest Until of the, Germany. Yeah. I know, I know. There's, uh, we, we won't divert into that. I, I have opinions on that as well. No doubt. But, <laughs> and I've written about it and published about it. But the point I'm making, though, is that cheap, cheap solar for commercial, for flat rooftops, for the side of small airports, for that field of weeds is something that's now highly viable as something where you can generate electricity behind the meter and you have to set up the behind the meter microgrid, you connect it to the grid, which requires some you know, work and money and effort. And then you've got a whole bunch of benefits you can play with there. The second one for me is heat pumps. Heat pumps have dropped in price. Daikin has now got the, uh, their you know, mega factory set up in Texas, pumping them out for the North American market. You know, so heat pumps can use that solar to move heat 
from indoors to outdoors or from outdoors to indoors with, you know, for getting, you get three to five units of heat for every kilowatt hour of electricity because you're moving heat around and those have plummeted in price and they give you heating and air conditioning at the same time. And, you know, and then there's the megawatts idea. There's a whole bunch of work that's just accessible today. And there's a whole bunch of labor in transforming and decarbonizing, electrifying everything, decarbonizing everything. You know, the microgrid story that, you know, I, I think it's 5% uh, for solar, for distributed solar. Uh, Mark Jacobson thinks it's 15%. We've agreed to disagree. Bill, you're very bullish on it. I think that 5% is a lot. So I'm, I'm not dismissing it in any way, shape or form. So there's a whole bunch of work there and entrepreneurs who are considering what do they do? You know, do they really want to be behind that desk in that cubicle? Do they want to continue to work in the oil and gas industry? Do they want to work in the coal industry? Bill's right. His observation of the opportunity that's flowered due to the plummeting prices and these changes means there's a lot of work to do that's very profitable, fun, and kind of virtuous. So, Bill, uh, I, I've been ranting a little bit. Weigh in. This episode of Clean Tech Talk is sponsored by Flow, the maker of the Flow Home X5. The Flow Home X5 is an industry-leading home EV charging solution that features a stylish and durable aluminum casing and allows you to schedule, monitor, and optimize your charging via the Flow mobile app. Flow offers 24-7 customer support to help with installation and troubleshooting. To learn more about the Flow Home, please visit store.flow.com. That's store.flo.com. When I first started interviewing people with the book and most of the entrepreneurs that I met were going and targeting the only audiences where there was money, which was the utilities. And they, uh, many of them were frustrated. I learned the term called death by pilot, uh, which is the utilities <laughs> have pretty large budgets for pilots that rarely transform into mainstream budgets. And as, as, as many of your listeners will know that to, for utilities to really embrace something, you need to be able to rate base it, which means they need to be able to charge their customers more if they invest in this particular thing. Utilities are such an odd and unique business model that I think bears some change over the coming years. But so at first I thought maybe the opportunities for entrepreneurs were going to be limited to the slow cycle, you know, makes uh, selling to the US government seem fast. But as I explored more and got to the, the small scale stuff, I realized that Opportunities were not constrained by monopoly laws. If I want to put solar panels on my roof, I have 20 companies I could choose from to install it. I have 20 companies or 100 companies that might make those panels and 20 companies that can make the electronics. And so all of a sudden, you have this much more familiar to me and most business people competitive market and the competitive dynamics and investors. Investors love that. So that's the area that I focused on in the book and personally am most interested in, which is this, this small segment, which I think is going to grow explosively. And so the book really looks at the business opportunities primarily through the lens of the small local energy emerging competitive marketplaces. And I list out about 50. I don't go into detail on all of them because I got to keep some ideas to myself, but list out roughly 50 ideas, what I should, what I should call big local energy opportunities. And I groan when I say it, but I call them blios for short, just so I don't have to type that long sentence over and over again in the book. But it's, you know, some of them are wacky and out there and, and may not be realized for 10 years and some are immediate and some are so obvious. It's like, why isn't anyone doing it right now? And some of them are already being done in a big way, but I cover the gamut. And hopefully when entrepreneurs 
particularly, uh, which is one of the people, folks, groups of folks I'd love to have read the book. When they read the last two chapters of the book, they'll see a lot of ideas that excite them. Uh, that's my goal. And we can talk about some of the ideas uh, if you're interested. Um, sure. But I, I want to pu- pull one string first, which is, you know, we talked about the relative lack of grid resilience in the United States. You know, that's one of the com- comments we, I went back and forth with you in, a, in my discussion, in our discussion around the book. The second point though, is that there's also, there's a lot of disparity of grid reliability inside the United States. And there's a lot of disparity about the utilities and their regulation inside the United States. You know, so this is one of the interesting things. There's a high degree of variance within the United States. California, there's a firm that I, I talked with Bill about and I've written about, which does AI mapping of the right, most effective solar arrays for the top of commercial buildings from Google available photographs and gives them a quote in seven seconds. Now, it's really cool. And they only sell in California because of the way the structure of the markets are and the way the, the regulations are strongly supportive of that. You know, and so we look across this for anybody entrepreneurs thinking about this, you, know, this is, you have, kind of have to look at your local region and you have to look at the regulatory structure. You have to look at the rate structure. You have to look at grid reliability and make a decision about whether this is the right play, play for your specific state in the United States. You know, Bill happens to live in a place where I'm, I'm going to be charitable and say, the utility is not known for being a beneficent provider to society. <laughs> and so he has a perspective just based on living where he lives that isn't universal across the United States. And, you know, Bill, I, since I provided that feedback and suggestion to you, have you thought more about that and have any insights based upon what you, you, you've been thinking about and who you've been talking to? I think there are some businesses that are, as you say, very dependent on the state or the uh, utility that serves them, serves the customers. But I think there's others that are very broad and are less dependent upon particular states, regulations, et cetera. So I think it's important, as you say, that people be very aware that some businesses are dependent on local state regulations or county or uh, the regulations from their electric co-op, et cetera, et cetera. And it's complicated. And I, I didn't get into a ton about how that structure works. I hopefully gave folks enough in the book to get a sense of how to go research it, but without trying to explain it, because it can make your eyes glaze over. I always send people to, it's called the Desire Database, a D-S-I-R-E. And if you go look that up, it's free. You can see all the relevant regulations for your state or your zip code. And that's a decent place to start either as a buyer of these these products or somebody who's wanting to enter the market and provide solutions or technology for that market. You know, it's funny. I talk to people in the South here who are involved in the utility industry all the time. And, you know, in their defense, they would say they're among the most beneficent uh, industries. They probably support more little league teams and more rotary clubs and and all those than other companies. And so they're very proud of their role. And, And I think there's a great history that the Southern utilities have done in terms of supporting their communities, but they like to do it as long as they control the stuff that has to do with electricity. So I think that if you want to be innovative and work in the utility industry, it's difficult in these vertically integrated uh, utilities here, particularly in the South and the Midwest. But I think local energy is opening wide in many parts of the South. And frankly, the biggest problem isn't the structure of the utilities, it's their, their ability to influence the regulators. And you can look at examples like Alabama, 
as a really particularly bad example where the regulators have been convinced by the utility to add fees on top of every watt you put on your roof that actually undermine any economic benefit of having solar. It's just a punitive fee that effectively makes solar uneconomic. And so that's those things tend to go away over time. But for the people who live in Alabama, as an example, and other places where there's less extreme, but still difficult, challenging policies, financial policies, uh, it slows the rate of local energy. But I think overall, it's headed in the right direction. I think the biggest question in the world right now on local energy policy is what California is going to do with their net metering. And that's a whole nother can of worms we don't need to get into. But California's always led, and they're about to take 10 steps back if uh, things don't change. And that would be a shame for the people of California and uh, certainly for the whole world who's looked at California as an example. Yeah, I, I, I like you know to talk about California quite a lot, but I think I'm going to pick on Texas for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other country, Michael. It's a whole other country. I, I, like to, I, I like to help people from the EU understand America by saying it's the EU without Brussels. <laughs> so Texas is interesting because they've had two major grid failures this year around, you know, uh, they had the cataclysmic uh, people, you know, freezing in the dark problem uh, around Valentine's Day in February, you know, mostly because they, there's a, a confluence of things there, which I won't get into. I've published quite a lot on that and uh, people can go find that, but fundamentally Everybody in Texas and any business in Texas that wants cannot depend upon the grid for resilience. They had actually grown in terms of grid reliability from dead last to 34th among U.S. states before this year. And now they've those rankings have gone quite a bit back. And so, you know, if we take you know one of Clean Technica's favorite topics, Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, Elon Musk, somebody asked me recently, well, what are they going to do when the grid fails in Texas, which it will, you know, uh, what are they going to do with their gigafactory? And I said, well, you know, Tesla makes solar panels and batteries. Yeah. They'll be fine. The, the gigafactory is a microgrid, a massive microgrid. And I think you may know this, the Tesla gigafactory in Texas was actually accredited as a utility last week. Yes. So it's actually uh, created this model where it's selling electricity for money. <laughs> As a service, as a utility, which is probably great for its local community because it will make the local community's grid much more reliable than the rest of Texas. It's just a, a fascinating case. And this gets back to the scale thing, which I like to call, talk about. Nobody thinks of gigafactories, Tesla's gigafactories, as small solar panels on your porch roof, you know, a, couple, a few panels in the side field. A gigafactory is a massive manufacturing plant and it's a microgrid. So it falls into the boundaries of what Bill and I have been talking about and what Bill talks about in his, his stuff. That's non-trivial. That is, that is microgrids at scale. And with, you know, uh, it has a, especially in Texas and back to that variation across US states, Texas, it's grid reliability problems, it's deregulation, it's lack of connection to the rest of the United States for grid interconnects, means it's a great place to be an entrepreneur in distributed grids. And Bill, do you spot any other low-hanging fruit states like uh, Texas? You know, the, the electricity industry has moved so slowly and it's changed so little from when Sam Insel stamped out the regulated monopoly or created the regulated monopoly idea. And what you do see 
across the 50 states, a lot of variation in exactly how they do it. And Texas, unsurprisingly, has taken a you know, low regulation, get out of our way, we're going to do anything we want. And for years, reliability aside, that model has been held up as an example by people that want to see less regulation in electricity. I think nobody says that anymore after the outage in February, because uh, Texas the, doesn't have, doesn't have the, a capacity the market. The September failures too, right? Right. And, and they, they don't have a capacity market like most of the US, which means that someone's getting paid not just to provide electricity now, but to assure you that electricity will be available in the future. And so Texas doesn't have that second part and paid a heavy price. But if you're Elon Musk and you were tired of getting COVID shutdowns for your factory during the height of COVID in California, you moved to Texas where that kind of stuff doesn't happen. I think we could wax political, no, no end about the pros and cons of heavy regulation, light regulation, et cetera. But I do think that we're going to see not just at the state level, we're going to see the whole country in the United States start to get a little more innovative is uh, something called FERC 2222, which is an order by the grid regulators in the United States that starts to lay the groundwork for some of these small systems to play a bigger role. I think we're going to watch what happens in energy communities in Europe, which are already rolling out, which are large behind the meter interconnected systems of solar and battery and other generation systems. So I think that it, we're, it, we're, we're going to see a lot of, uh, lots of little lab experiments all over the country and all over the world for what's possible. We're going to make a lot of mistakes on the uh, policy level. You know, but when you talk about states, my favorite state is Hawaii. They have some terrible constraints that have made them be ridiculously innovative from a policy point of view. And as you, as you know, I think it's a very large percentage, half of the solar in the state is on rooftops because they don't want to tear down the beautiful trees and put up giant solar fields. I get it, but it works and it makes sense. And they do things like uh, they had a problem where there was too many distributed generation systems. So they just stopped them. That wasn't popular. They got a lot, a lot of pushback. So they came up with new policies that in, made people put battery or help make it make sense for people to install batteries too. And I love Hawaii and people refer to it as I do in the book as well. It's the postcard from our uh, electricity future. So my favorite example is actually Hawaii, because I think they are, for a variety of reasons, I'm sure they don't like electricity, it's expensive, blah, blah, blah. But I think they are showing us what's possible to get a far more dense local energy system than we've seen anywhere else in the world, really. Yeah. And you kind of like look at the isolated island states and the penetration of renewables on you know, places that can't be grid connected to anything. You know, that's an indicator like Iceland, Iceland at approaching 100% re renewable with very, very little uh, oil and natural gas burned for, you know, just that little bit of extra grid resilience. These are where we're, we're, we're heading. So, you know, we've only got a, you know, 10 or 15 minutes left. So there's probably, you know, two or three things we want to look at. You know, you mentioned that you've got the ideas for entrepreneurs. So we've been talking about, you know, Pick your battles, pick your states, not all these ideas, but you got 50 ideas, I think you said. So what are, you know, which ones do you want to highlight for a few minutes? I'll tell you my, my crazy fun one, which I don't think will be a real market for a few years, but I, it's really intriguing to me. The challenge of local energy for purists, and I am not a purist, but for purists, they want to go off grid. They don't want to be connected to the grid at all. And from a practical matter, you have three or four rainy days that your solar output drops and your batteries are drained and you're without electricity. So the true off-grid folks are signing up for a huge amount of pain in their day-to-day -day life compared to being on the grid electrically. And, and so 
you know, that's a philosophical challenge for some people. Hey, I don't want to be part of the giant big grid. I don't like my monopoly utility. And it turns out there's a Trojan horse that's going to, for, for early pioneers, that will mean they can actually go off grid and I believe will be entirely legal within the frameworks of the mon monopolies throughout the United States, the electric monopolies. And that is something I call the mobile battery to home. And it goes something like this. More and more states in the United States are allowing electric vehicle charging to take place, not just by how long you're plugged into the charger, but by the actual kilowatt hours that are sold. And that's important because you know, I buy gasoline by the number of gallons I buy, not how long the pumps in my car. And uh, the reason that just didn't start out that way in the electricity industry was that utilities were the only ones legally allowed to sell kilowatt hour. And states bit by bit have gone and pulled that back and allowed the sell of a charging to be done by the kilowatt hour. Well, so I can go charge, I can go buy a bunch of kilowatt hours, put them in my car, and I can bring the card home. And I'm sure most of your uh, listeners, everyone in clean technique is fully aware of the new Ford Lightning and the ability for it to power your house when the power's out. But that same technology, the identical technology could also help power your house when you're on the grid. And just, you know, if you're, if you work at a place where uh, like many places at IBM, you can charge your car for free. And so uh, uh, you just car charge a car, you go home and you power your house with free electricity overnight. And, but you saw that rainy day problem. And I love mobile battery to home because an industry is going to emerge to satisfy those customers. And if you think about it, in, at least in my, I live in suburbia, I have someone driving by, dropping off an Amazon package or delivering a pizza or something pretty regularly. Those vehicles will almost certainly be electric vehicles in the future. And the incremental effort for them to go in and top off my residential battery is relatively small, especially as charging gets faster and faster. And these, these carve-outs, these monopoly carve-outs for vehicle charging, coupled with vehicle-to-home technology, means that you could quite literally use your vehicle and third-party vehicles to take your house entirely off-grid. So mobile battery to home is the craziest idea of the list, but I, I will say with confidence, it's going to be a real market. I don't know whether it's going to be you know, 1% of homes or 10% of homes that do it, but people will have the option to go off-grid. So that's the craziest idea and one that I just tickle, I get tickled thinking about. But the one that's most in front of us, and I think for the next two or three years is most exciting, mm -hmm. is building integrated photovoltaics. So imagine you're a, a strip mall or a home or an office park, and you go and you build your roof, you know, you insulate it, uh, you waterproof it, and then you decide to go solar. So when you built your first roof, you had to design it, you had to buy all the materials, and then you had to hire people to build the roof, you finish it. Then a year or two later, you come back and you say, I want to put solar on the roof. After someone come and design it, they have to buy all the solar materials. They've got to then climb on the roof. They have to install it. They have to work around all the stuff that you put on your roof initially. And build it. One of the the future of this world is lives in a is lives in Italy. So I went out to um, a place near uh, Venice, a town called uh, Padua, and visited a company called Eco Progetti. And they make the machines that make building integrated roofs. And their roof on this building was solar panels in between. They kept the, kept the heat in the building and kept the uh, water out of the building were mildly modified, but otherwise traditional solar panels. And the people only had to build that once. They didn't have to risk breaking the existing roof by pounding nails and screws through it to put solar panels on it. Uh, it the cost of 
a roof that is solar is cheaper in almost every situation than building a roof and adding solar to it. This is the big pitch behind uh, Tesla's solar tiles. But I think this is a much, much bigger idea. There's a company called that I interviewed in the book called GAF Energy that has a similar product. You can, you'll come and install it in your house. And when it's, when you're putting your new roof on, or you're replacing your shingled roof, they'll come out and, and they'll just put a brand new roof, except it'll be solar panels rather than solar panels on top of your roof. Uh, and it turns out the solar panels actually can last much, much longer than traditional shingled roofs. You might need to change your shingled roof every 12, 15, 18 years, sometimes more often, depending on where you live, but your average solar panel will last 20 to 30 years. So the savings accrue not just up front, but also over time. So my one of my favorite new ideas is building integrated photovoltaics. And if you go out to Italy, it's not just these blue or black panels, but they also make aesthetic solar, uh, BIPV, that looks like terracotta panels. And you when you drive by, you can see these beautiful Italian homes that have terracotta roofs. And you can, if you look carefully, you can see solar on top of it that is actually blending in with the beautiful roof. So once you, when BIPV really takes off, uh, we're going to see systems that become basically invisible and you're starting with your roof. And ultimately, I even think that we'll see walls and windows and other places in some cases start to be solar generating as well. And that's the next 10 years to me, that's one of the most exciting opportunities and diverse opportunities for entrepreneurs. Um, there's actually a really interesting you know, thing I've been poking at. I, you may or may not have spotted. I did a projection through 2100 of hydrogen demand. And you know, one of the things I said is that refinery demand for hydrogen, 55% of all the pure hydrogen demand, is obviously going to go away for the most part. And I, I've poked at that further, and I think I was actually too nice. I think it's going to go away entirely. But as we drop down to 5% of the current refine, refinement of, you know, of crude oil, into a whole bunch of stuff. There's a really interesting sideline here that people need to think about for the next two decades. The stuff on our roads and the shingles on our roofs are made with the waste byproducts that are left behind after you refine gasoline. Asphalt is the waste that they can't do anything else with. And so it's really cheap to put it on our roads. It has good form factors there. It's water is proof. And that's good for, that's why we've got asphalt singles on, shingles on all of our roofs as well. Well, guess what? Hmm. That's going away. We're not going to be refining gasoline and, and diesel and, and kerosene in a few decades. And so all of that byproduct that we use today, so don't know what we're going to do with roads yet. I haven't figured that one out. But integrated solar on the roof just kind of bypasses that problem. All of a sudden, you've got a roof that makes electricity and lasts longer and is going to be cheaper than the, the potentially the other stuff in a few decades. It's just an interesting sideline. Michael, okay. that's exactly why disruptions are so exciting, because you just drew together two unrelated industries that, in, to my ears, sounds like a massive business opportunity for roads too, by the way. And that dislocation that occurs is... One technology goes winds down, and other technologies wind up. The secondary, tertiary dislocations are what's really interesting, and I try to talk a lot about that in the book. And I'm really glad you shared. This is the second one I've got out of our, our conversation today. Airports is the first, and this is the second. This is the stuff that entrepreneurism and investor and, and venture investing is made of. And so it's exciting, even in the short conversation, that we can come up with a couple that are new 
And this really speaks to a tiny little sliver of what's going to be what I argue is the largest disruption in business history. So uh, thank you for helping me build that story. This has been so cool to hear your ideas. Well, this is one of the things when, it, when I talk to investors and stuff, I, I do my projections out for decades so that I have a sense decade by decade of where changes are going to occur. If you just say these things are going to happen and don't kind of say roughly when and start picking it apart, you know, disarticulating the components of it, you don't know where the, tr- the disruption is going to hit in what way and roughly when. And so you can't say this investment this decade will make you money and it'll still be use- useful in 2030 and 2040. All right. So most, most of the investments in hydrogen fuel cells won't be money making in 2030 and 2040. Hydrogen electrolyzers will be. You know, mm. as for, as an example, so you pick your, you got to pick your, you've got to always go with what is business investing in? What is the hype right now? And hydrogen's got too much hype, but which portions of that are actually going to be of value? Anyway, we're, we're cl- near the top of the hour. And I know that you've got a really interesting opportunity to go to talk to, I think it's McKinsey's sustainability practice in a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to give you time to you know, have a bite to eat and prepare for that. And we are at the top of our scheduled time. As I promised, you know, we've got 50% of clean technicas audiences in the United States. So really great. Bill's book is coming up once again, freeing energy available on Amazon for pre-order right now, you know, go find it and click. But the open-ended question for the 50% in the United States and the 50% spread around the world, you know, what one thing would you leave them with? This is a purely open-ended question. You know, you as Bill Nussie speaking to a global audience. There is an express lane for climate change that nobody sees. Uh, this is what local energy is, and people need to give it a serious look. The world is fixated on big policies, gigabets for technology for things like offshore wind and nuclear. These are all very important things that need to be done, but this is like a traffic jam in the main part of the highway. Everyone's bunched up. We're not making progress. COP26 was disappointing. Uh, There's so much more they should have done, but the nature of these big political systems, as much as we need them, is that they move very slowly. And local energy is the express lane on the highway. You can pull off of all that nonsense, let it, you know, for most people, that's maybe the only way they can go, but people that read this book, people that listen to your podcast, Michael, that read Clean Technica, there is an express lane. And by pulling into that express lane, they can both move more quickly and individually take some control over where and how we transition to clean energy. And I hope that uh, this conversation will inspire a few more people to look more seriously that local energy is a new and faster path uh, that they can contribute in a personal way, either through a startup or just putting soil on the roof or just being educated and writing letters to policymakers, whatever form it takes, this is something that needs a lot more attention and is a lot more exciting and will move a lot more quickly. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, I've been speaking with Bill Nussie, the CEO of the Freeing Energy Project, CEO of Solar Inventions, and author of Freeing Energy, available on Amazon. Go buy it. Bill, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And thank you for all your help uh, making this book. Uh, you know, the hydrogen section of the book got rewritten from scratch when I read your stuff, Michael. So I'm grateful for all of your input and suggestions and advice. Uh, and, and thank you for all the great work that you do. I wish I had enough hours in the day to read it all. But it's a, it is fantastic. And this has been a true pleasure and an honor to be part of this with you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.